Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm Steve Stein, and this week we turn back time and wander into the wily world of the ancient Silk Road. That's where one young explorer and accomplished photographer, Alex Flom, spends his time these days. He's betting on a renaissance among budding Central Asian economies, not in trade, but in tourism. But more on that later in the program. I lost track of Alex shortly after our interview, but rumor, and social media has it, that he's somewhere in the nation of Georgia preparing for his next expedition. At the time we spoke, he was working round the clock, finalizing the layout for his new book. Captured in his images are the awe-inspiring expanse of virgin landscape. There's a raw beauty to it. Not for the faint-hearted, I thought, but for the last of us who find pleasure in remoteness. This is a Silk Road, after all. The very name conjures up images of camel convoys, Mongol hordes, boundless horizons, and of course, the Great Game. That period in the 19th century when British and Russian spies vied for territory and trade rights throughout Central Asia. It was the stuff of Rudyard Kipling novels, and as a young man, it made my head spin. But this is Alex's time, and for him and others, the new Silk Road offers fresh opportunities for adventure seekers, eco-tourists, and a few madmen as well. From February to May of 2018, Alex and his brother Nate traveled the road's length, covering 11,942 kilometers from Tbilisi in the west to Almaty in the east. I kicked off our conversation asking Alex what first drew him to the realm of Central Asia. Uh, funnily enough, my initial fascination with the stands happened when I was living pretty much as far away from the stands you can get when I was spending time in Iceland. And what happened was I graduated university and was looking for a way to kick off my photography career. And I had my first site set on Iceland as a place that I thought was beautiful and that could create fantastic imagery. And I spent some time there. But what was happening was this was in 2017 when Iceland was literally at the, the height of its uh, tourist interest in the world and there were just thousands and thousands of photographers there so I was having a great time creating this imagery I felt like I wasn't adding anything to the creative community by being there because every photo I took someone had taken either the exact same photo or a very similar photo and you were doing still photography as well as uh, doing uh, drone photography as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. A lot of drone photography while I was in Iceland. And so when you were looking for a new destination, what struck you? What, what did you want to do? Was it the idea of going to someplace unique, different, and exotic? Or was it the idea of bringing a unique, different, exotic place to other people? Uh, for me, the fascination is telling a story that not many people are telling. Okay. And telling a story that few people are telling that's actually worth telling. And after some time of consideration of all the different places of the world, following the Silk Road is what really came together as a story that is fascinating, has incredible historical context and importance to literally every single part of the world, and is a story, at least from the modern-day Western perspective, that's not being told very often. And it has this historical uh, mysticism about it, but there's also a very contemporary story being played out with the Chinese and their uh, Bridge and Road Initiative, which is basically Belt and Road, which is looking at building and engaging and integrating uh, the world with China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what makes looking at this section of the world right now so fascinating, is that by them trying to recreate what happened in their ancient history, we can look at that ancient history and see how it's going to help play out in their future. Little geography lesson. Take us, those of us who've never been in that part of the world and many of the listeners, a little bit about what the, is the beginning and the end point or the bookends, if you will, on the Silk Road. Tell us, you know, where is the stepping off spot and where is the exit? 
Right, yeah. So the Silk Road officially or unofficially started in the second century BC when the Chinese Empire started to look beyond their western mountain border, which is right now where the Xinjiang province is. Um, by doing so, they discovered the Fergana Valley, which is the very center of Central Asia and the horses that they were breeding there. Fascinated by those horses, the Chinese decide, decided to trade their silk for the horses they found there, which essentially was the paving of the very first section of the Silk Road. Just a few short decades later, silk had traveled, or maybe even a century later, Chinese silk had traveled all the way from Qian in China to Istanbul, or Constantinople at that time. And then with that, they created an appetite in Europe for more things Eastern. Uh, yeah, a, a truly insatiable appetite for, for silk, spice, uh, gunpowder, glass were all, were all huge things that were coming in. So for centuries, trade moving back and forth, and you were saying that the Silk Road was parceled out, that trades occurred between one destination to the next, and then it would hand off to another middleman who would then trade, take his margin, move on, and that's the way it worked for centuries, uh, up until the time of maybe the 13th century Marco Polo, where they decided that um, if to go end-to-end, -end, cut out the middleman, there might be a better opportunity to reap higher profits uh, and trade on your terms. Is that about right? I mean, that's a real amateur take on history, but that's my understanding. Is that yours? Yeah, so we'd say the Silk Road ran from the 2nd century BC right up to around the 15th or maybe in the beginning of the 16th century AD. So we're looking at roughly 1700 years of trade. And what happened then? Um, around the 15th century AD, uh, Europeans figured out how to uh, take boats massive distances and how to do it safely and how to do it in an organized fashion where they could we'd do it in mass amounts. So what they did is to skip the... 10, 15, 20 middlemen they had to deal with in the Silk Road to get their desired silk or spice from, say, China or India, they created their ships and sailed right across down the Atlantic through the Indian Ocean and right to China or India directly, cutting out 15 traders and mass amounts of cost. So for 250, 300 years, we saw a decline of what were, prior to that, thriving empires and cultures built on trade. Yes, there was, there was a, a very rapid decline of the area of Central Asia, which isn't particularly resource-rich. The only reason it, it had risen to power was just the fact of its geographical advantage of being right at the center of trade. As soon as trade moved away from Central Asia and to the oceans, it lost all power that it held. And very quickly, we saw populations, wealth, and everything dwindle in an area that was once considered the very center of the world. Then came the 20th century, and the Russian Revolution, and the establishment of the Soviet Union, and what appears to be this cordoning off of the Thistans, uh, which, um, which were empires, I guess, small empires or small ethnic tribes that were uh, almost like the Middle East, congregated in such a way where they had their interests, but ethnically divided. Is that about right? That's about right. Well, it actually started in the 1850s, so the middle of the 19th century, when uh, Russia was still an empire. Uh, they came in and it took about 30 to 45 years for Russia to really conquer just about all of Central Asia. And only 10 or 15 years after they'd conquered all of Central Asia, um, it, had, it had changed from the, the Russian Empire was overthrown and it turned into the Soviet Empire. Mm. 
And these were, in principle, just uh, mining territories, uh, commodities, uh, uh, gulags. I mean, it was a pretty bleak part of the Soviet Union, from my historical recollection. Yeah, there, there, there was very little going on. There, there was interest in Russia gaining control of the region so that they could get down to India. That was a big interest for them, and that's partly what sparked the, what they call the Great Game, where you had the British Empire controlling Afghanistan and that region, the Russian Empire controlling Central Asia, and then coming to a sort of impasse uh, where the Pamir Mountains are now, where the Russians really wanted to get down and control the waterways there, and the, the British Empire were not having any of it. So that's History 101 for those of you who want to know about the Silk Road. But I think it's an important uh, way of establishing what's going on today, Alex, right? Because now you've got uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. You have this uh, development of just 30-year-old states, which are creating the Stans, which are now five of them, I guess, that are popping up across between China and and what is modern-day Russia. Um, And you've got a new opportunity to create a different dynamism in those marketplaces that simply hasn't existed in thousands of years. Is that part of the intrigue? And tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I'd say that's that's a massive part of the intrigue, yeah. Uh, just to give a little more context, essentially what we've got in Central Asia is an area that is roughly 40% the size of the United States. It's 4 million uh, square kilometers, and 70 to 80 million people live there. Um, for a long time, nothing was happening. And then the Russians took over and then covered it in a shroud of secrecy, similar to what we'd call the Iron Curtain, but instead of happening on the Eastern Front, we had it happening in Central Asia. Now it's opening up and heads are starting to turn and, and realizing the potential. What is the potential? What do you see as the potential? Uh, from my perspective, uh, I come from more of an exploration or, or tourism background. For me, a lot of the potential lies in a fascination Uh, for us as humans, as explorers, to find a place that we could say is raw or wild and gives us a feeling that is hard to replicate anywhere else. And we're running out of places in the world to do that. How how are governments in this part of the world uh, rallying to this idea of creating a truly unique tourist experience versus just throwing up large brand name hotels and resorts and uh, hoping to get the, uh, the dollars as simply the lowest common denominator? I'd say that each of the governments are are definitely going different routes. So what we've got, we've got five countries. Turkmenistan is still in an absolute dictatorship that's not too dissimilar to North Korea. They're they're roughly out of the equation. When we talk about Central Asia and the future of Central Asia right now, we don't really talk about Turkmenistan. Uzbekistan, uh, up until just two and a half or three years ago, was also in a dictatorship. Right now, they're in something that might still be a dictatorship, but though could parade as a democracy. But they're starting to open up to the Western world. And what Uzbekistan has done is they've essentially rejected all things Russian. And they're trying to build up themselves, and then they're likely trying to, trying to look West. Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, as they gained independence, decided to, to inherently keep a lot of ties with Russia, continue their trade with Russia, which has helped Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan flourish amongst the rest of the nations as the wealthiest and well-to-do nations in the region. All going their own paths, all with different strategies. In your view, having traveled end-to-end, which grasped your imagination? What do you think is the strategy which will yield? I think Uzbekistan is a particularly fascinating country. They have uh, roughly 20 million people there, 
and uh, resource wise they have very little it's it's 80 to 70 to 80 percent desert there and they only really have some fertile land in the Fergana Valley but they have a culture there a culture of hospitality that that generates from the early Persian culture that is really just a sight to behold and is so incredibly warm for anyone who visits the area mm. and at the same time the country as a whole is doing is is trying really hard to create a strong sense of not necessarily nationalism but cultural pride there that i think we could see take off in an interesting direction you're listening to inside asia and i'm in conversation with alex flom photojournalist wanderer and silk road enthusiast when we come back alex spins a few yarns from his journey and shares his hopes for the region stay tuned You, you're not an armchair traveler, Alex. You, you're not just uh, looking at the situation and saying, I'm fascinated because of the story, the history, the Silk Road uh, tales. You're, you're actually talking about uh, having journeyed yourself across these different areas and seen it for yourself. How did you start your trip? Where did you begin and where did you end and how did you make your way across? So my trip started in Istanbul and I spent three or four weeks through Turkey, but really where my trip started in Georgia, because that's where I was able to buy my car. From Georgia, we spent a couple of weeks in the Caucasus and then traveled into Azerbaijan. I, I gotta ask, what kind of car did you buy? We bought a, a 1998 Mitsubishi Pajero, or a Montero if you're in North America. A potential advertisement for Mitsubishi, <laughs> by the way. It had, a, it had no heating, no cooling, a single functioning door, and no handbrake. But single function, as in it opened but didn't close? <laughs> I mean, what would be the single function? Uh, oh, quite literally, it's a two-door Jeep. Yeah. And if you want to get in the car, the driver's door has to open and then get in and open the passenger door. If you want to get out of the car, the passenger has to exit, walk around and open the driver door. <laughs> and that's not just a Mitsubishi feature. That just comes with time and, and, uh, and, and, and torment, I suspect. That's a, that's a Silk Road feature. <laughs> So tell us, okay, so you loaded up, did you have to equip this car in any particular way, add additional fire, uh, tires, uh, put a rack on the top, anything to outfit it for this long journey? Yeah, tires, rack, a uh, decent sound system because we'd be spending a lot of time in the car. And we, we went down to the local uh, flea market in Tbilisi and kitted ourselves up with uh, a whole lot of old Soviet gear that people are trying to throw away. Like what? Uh, we got these uh, old Soviet leather briefcases that were given out to just about every single person. You can find them everywhere, but they're great quality. You can buy a giant leather briefcase for less than $10 there. We, we had four large briefcases and they went on top of our car. And one was holding camping gear, two were holding clothes, another was holding all of our food. Yeah. So, so you're local, you went local, you found, you, you procured locally, you found what would be of utility, and then you set out. Now, what about food or, or alcohol or any other type of beverage? Uh, we would do our best to, to go to local markets in the city, and we'd stock up for four to ten days at a time, and then we'd hit the road until we ran out of supplies and find ourselves at a city again. What time of year did you set out? Our trip started at the beginning of February and ended at the end of May. And why would you choose the middle of winter to start that trip into one of the coldest regions in the world? Uh, to get as far away from any notion of tourism as we could. <laughs> well done. Success. Yeah. yeah. So what, what about when, when you set off? I mean, what were some of the early learnings on this journey in terms of things that you hadn't expected that you suddenly found yourself needing to contend with? For instance, were the roads uh, 
to your expectation or were they uh were they gravel were they paved uh were there were there barriers or, or stoppage or checkpoints along the way that you hadn't anticipated uh were you given free passage or did you have to pay bribes that kind of stuff uh well in terms of the roads i'd never driven a car in my life so this was me teaching myself how to drive a car so <laughs> i had no preconceived notions of what a road qual what road qualities were anywhere in the world <laughs> or what driving was yeah, yeah. so that was, that was an entire learning process um in terms of bribes, we actually had to deal with far less than we would have expected. The, the real thing that I learned or struggled that we had to deal with was just patience. Mm -hmm. There were so many times during this trip where we had to wait for just absurd amounts of time, whether it was sitting for 17 hours at a dock in Azerbaijan waiting for our boat to come, then waiting four days on the boat for a journey that was 120 kilometers, or our average border crossing time being roughly seven hours every single border crossing we did. Or even when we were in the Pamir Highway, we hit a avalanche on the road and we had to turn back and it took us four full days of driving to get to the equal destination. So a four day roadblock that we had to deal with. Did, did you circumvent that or did you just wait for them to clear? Uh, circumvent. Uh, I'm, I'm sure over a year later that avalanche is still there. What about petrol stations? Did you have to carry your own or were there uh, gas stations along the way? It varies from nation to nation. Uh, Central Asia in general is very oil rich but places on the western side of Central Asia, so western Kazakhstan and western Uzbekistan, there is a, a sincere lack of any gas station, so you really had to carry as much as you could. At one point in western Kazakhstan, we did run out of gas, mm. and we had to get towed for 100 kilometers, mm. uh, which was a wild experience, and obviously we didn't have a tow bar, and the first person to pass us who decided to try and help us didn't have a tow bar either, so we took our $5 roof strap rope, tied it between our 1998 Mitsubishi Pajero and their small Chevy car, and we were on our way through a thunderstorm. Did, did you ever along the way stop and say, you know, um, we've seen enough, maybe it's time to go back? Or was it just this idea that we'll persevere under any circumstance, no matter what the weather throws at us, or no matter, matter what our Mitsubishi can, can handle? We had many times where we had this genuine feeling of what the hell are we doing here? But the following feeling of that was never we should turn back. Mm. It was, if anything, a stronger feeling that we should keep going. Because we really felt like we were not necessarily breaking new ground, but in the context of the Western world, relatively new ground. And of course, Alex, what we haven't talked about yet is your photography and some of the extraordinary images you came back with. Uh, what was that like for you to go into new territory, you know, armed with your camera, uh, you know, with, with, with the technology that you had to take the type of video or still footage that you felt could uh, fairly and, and effectively represent the territory and the terrain you were covering? What's really important for me in terms of photography is being as much a fly on the wall as possible and making sure that if I'm ever to photograph any people that I spend adequate amount of time with them, that I'm not just showing up and trying to take a, a portrait of a of a kid in the middle of nowhere for the sake of it being an aesthetically pleasing portrait for me understanding maybe that kid spending spending time with this family before i decided to take an image so the whole process of photography really slows down for me any kind of trip that i that i want to do mm. oftentimes if i if i'm heading towards a remote village i'll spend a day or two days before i even take my camera out and so i can try and form a relationship 
bonds with a whole family or with individual people before I decide to take a photograph. I can completely see that with families and with people. I mean, that comfort level, you're right. There's a whole different way that you're, they look into the lens and you see them and you relate with them. But I don't understand that with the landscape. Do you, have, do you have to spend the same amount of time familiarizing yourself with the landscape, perhaps being attentive to light or understanding you know, what the landscape could yield and under different circumstances? Yeah, landscape is more of a game of patience again. Uh, you're often, some places are best during blue hour, which is just before the sunrise or just after the sunset. Some places are, are best during that golden hour, just after the sunrise or before the sunset. Uh, one of my favorite images was actually the cover of my book, which is a drone image of, of a road in Georgia and all around it is, is, is white as far as you can see. And the way that I got, and the, the road is perfectly paved and, and a, a stark black contrast to the rest of the white. And the way that I got the image was that the road had actually shut down for three days because of a massive storm. So everything around the road was covered in snow. And we were ready to drive off. But then I saw that there was a giant snowplow coming in, maybe five or 10 kilometers all the way on the other side of the valley. So I decided to sit and wait in the car on the side of the road for an hour and a half almost until the snowplow came in and cleared the road, which gave me a maybe five minute period to create this fantastic image where the road was 100% clear of any snow, but the surrounding was 100% was snowed out. So that, that's the kind of things I look for in terms of landscape photography. Yeah, it's an impressive image. And, and you, you double take when you see it, it almost feels like it's been uh, you know, photoshopped, but then you, you realize, no, it's that's actually as pure as the driven snow, so to speak. It's exactly the way it was and exactly the way you saw it. Um, a, a little bit about, you know, as you were going into these extremely long drives in desolate territories with not a lot of uh, people or, or cities or towns, did you ever arrive at a point where you thought we're in trouble? We actually um, are, have found ourselves on the side of the road, ill-equipped, equipped, a breakdown, or, or getting lost. Were there moments where you thought, um, we, we've overreached? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in, in Western Kazakhstan, so the time that we ran out of gas, that was already a very stressful time for us, but we managed uh, to pull through through the help of these Uzbeki men, and we get to the border crossing town to get into Uzbekistan. The border crossing itself takes about nine hours, probably nine or ten hours, the longest crossing we had to deal with. And the road, 70 or 80 kilometers either side of the, the border, was, was the worst road that we had to deal with the whole time. It was more pothole than it was road. Our car, already old and, and brakes not fantastic as it is, really struggled with all the potholes. And after about four hours of driving on this road, our brakes just stopped working. We looked at our map and realized that we were anywhere between 150 and 200 kilometers to the next sign of life or, or any sort of, of, of building or anything at all was at least 150 to 200 kilometers away from us. And we'd found us in, ourselves in this situation where we just, we had to keep driving and we had no way of slowing down. Because our car never had a handbrake, we couldn't force ourselves to brake. And because our car was an automatic car, we couldn't gear shift to slow down. So we had literally found ourselves driving down a desert road with friction as our only resistance to speed. Um, <laughs> and thank God there was not a lot of traffic. Yeah, uh, luckily enough, it was a, a flat and straight desert road. And there was virtually no cars until around four hours in where we start to see the, the lights of what appeared to be a semi-trailer off in the distance. At this point, it's, it's maybe midnight. And we have little to no depth perception because the road is so straight and so flat and there's just surrounding darkness. We have no idea if this truck is, is two or, or 20 kilometers away from us. After a few minutes, we realize a little too slowly that this truck is gaining on us a, a little too quickly. 
And what ensues next is essentially the world's slowest car chase as, as we spend the next 15 to 20 minutes gaining, gaining on this semi-trailer as we have this absurd amount of time to try and figure out our plan. It's not like we're rushed or anything. We're like, yeah, 20 minutes from now, we're going to run into this truck. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> and we, 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 came, we came up with three options. Either we try and swerve past the truck or, or rather go past the truck, which means we'd have to gain some serious speed, which obviously we wouldn't be losing anytime soon. We could try and bash into the truck going roughly 35 kilometers an hour, which is not really an option. Or we just swerve off into the, the surrounding darkness. <laughs> we decide to swerve. And by, by the absolute dumbest of luck, we, we hit this dense heap of, of sand and mud that's just off the road that entirely mitigates our momentum as our, as our car hits it, ramps up to it, and ends on a 45-degree angle, almost tipping over. We had, a, we, had a, we had a crawl out of our windows and, and, and look at our car. It's, it's now 1 o'clock in the morning as we're stuck on this, this dense heap of sand. Um, eventually, maybe 45 minutes later, we, man we managed to wriggle Casper, our, our car, out of, this, out of this dense heap of sand and we're, we're on our way for another three hours again. <laughs> Still no brakes. Still no brakes. Yeah. And actually, when we finally get to the first sign of civilization, there's a police barricade on the road because in Uzbekistan there's police barricades everywhere. By now it's three or four o'clock in the morning. And we're gaining on this barricade. Once again, we have a lot of time to decide how we're going to navigate the situation. And my brother, who's driving at the time, remembers that when you're skiing, you turn your heels really fast to try and slow down your speed. So we're driving on this road totally alone, and he takes a steering wheel and just jams it left and right as fast as he can as we're, we're, we're spinning as much as possible without tipping the car. And by doing that, we managed to lose all of our momentum and come to a, a complete stop maybe two, two or three meters in front of this barricade. <laughs> why, why would you not have practiced this in the middle of nowhere to test that theory before you wait for the police barricade is my question. It, it was just it was it just hadn't come up we, we were we were we were very stressed it's out not like you didn't have time to think about it i mean hours and hours and the thousands of kilometers here but and i do uh, suspect that once you arrived there you did get your brakes fixed did you not uh luckily enough there was a truck stop there and the next morning the the owner of the truck stop opened up our car and all four brake pads were were, were vanished they, they disappeared entirely just worn out there was a massive hole in our, our brake fluid capacitor and all of our brake fluid had drained and then that coupled with the fact that we never had a handbrake meaning this car literally had no method whatsoever of slowing down all right all right folks this is not a chapter of uh, travel for dummies this has actually happened and uh, alex uh, actually you know it, it just says something about your your will to go ahead and test the limits and frankly if you think about this this is not travel for the faint-hearted it's new territory it's it's remote uh, it's it's largely unfamiliar with tourism of any sort and I guess that's the attraction for you Alex if I'm not mistaken because you do believe that as we look around the world and sitting here in Bali together we know what a huge destination Bali is it wasn't always that way your feeling is that this could be a future destination for for other explorers for people who have this appetite for an adventure but are finding it harder and harder to find exotic destinations with extraordinary people and scenery. I think what we have here is the opportunity to take an entire region of the world and start them with tourism off on the right foot. Mm. And we've done it wrong in so many places around the world now. Mm. To me, going there and moving there and living there and trying to be part of that movement in the grassroots as it's starting and create a tourism society, a tourism economy there that could be started environmentally friendly and started in a way that's culturally respectable and culturally savors the culture there is something that really interests me. Do you think that that's how many experiments in tourism began, but then 
money and influence and vested interests take over? Or have we never had the opportunity to reflect on the way tourism has infected the world and therefore have an opportunity to do it differently? I think we are far more cognizant of our impact in the world now than we have ever been before. And we see ecotourism popping up all over the world, but we see it in a lot of places that have already had established tourism for a long time. Mm. I think it, it's entirely possible that people may have had good intentions coming to places earlier, but they definitely weren't coming in with the mind frame that, or the mindset that we have now and all the understanding of our impact on the world that we have now. If the Chinese get their way and they build the build out the Belt and Road Initiative in, in, in the way that they envision it, uh, connecting once again, you know, Europe with, uh, with, with the Orient. Do you feel that that could undermine the ability of creating the right type of environment as you see it for tourism among the Stans? Uh, I think that could certainly have an impact. It has the power to do good in the fact that they're going to create incredible amounts of infrastructure, which all of Central Asia is massively lacking right now, which is also something that's incredibly important for any amount of tourism depending on how involved China want to get want to get in Central Asia, which is likely quite involved given China's track record in the past, that I think it could absolutely have an hindrance. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book before we sign off. So my book is called Overland Through the Middle of the World, and it's a large format coffee table book, uh, 24 by 30 centimeters, and it takes the reader on a journey, the journey that I took from Istanbul to Almaty in Kazakhstan taking you country by country, leading you by a map that I had personally created, giving you a historical background of the country that you're in, its, its own history, its history to the Silk Road, and some anecdotal stories of my personal experiences or particularly fascinating historical tidbits of that region that I thought uh, a reader might be fascinated in. And it's, it's all information that I believe is not particularly easy to find out there. And where is your book available? It's available either through my website or on Amazon, Overland Through the Middle of the World. Dot com. Dot com. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Steve. It's been awesome. That was my conversation with Alex Flom, explorer, photographer, and burgeoning eco-tour guide. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, we consider what development looks like or should look like in the 21st century. They paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell wrote those lines nearly 50 years ago, pointing the finger at reckless developers. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not knocking the value of infrastructure development. China, for instance, has been transformed by its own construction and financing prowess. Just visit any major city in the Middle Kingdom and witness the wonders of cutting-edge urban planning. The country is proud of its accomplishments, and rightly so. Extending these proven competencies to neighboring countries, therefore, makes good sense. That's the thinking that led to the 2013 introduction of the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. It came with a Chinese government pledge to provide upwards of $50 billion in loans and grants to help any developing country get the infrastructure it needed. Needless to say, the plan has generated some very mixed views. On the one hand, it's a potential boon for poor countries that need roads, ports, and power plants to attract, in turn, foreign direct investment. On the other hand, some observers say it smacks of neocolonialism, a wool in sheep's clothing attempt by China to indebt less fortunate trading partners. There's some truth and some envy in that point of view, but what does it mean for Central Asia? 
In listening to Alex, I wonder if there isn't a third way, a more thoughtful roadmap for offering the young countries of Central Asia infrastructure appropriate to their conditions and conducive to a healthier, more sustainable form of growth. One that has less to do with east-to-west high-speed shipments of consumer electronic goods and more to do with sustainable economic development. What am I talking about? Tourism. Take Europe, for example. The continent's combined tourist spend breached $570 billion last year on the back of 710 million visitors, and it created 12 million jobs. No doubt, Central Asian planners would like a piece of that, but how is the question? Well, consider this. Which country is home to the highest number of tourists? The U.S.? Germany? How about Japan? Wrong. It's China. According to data compiled by HowMuch.net, Chinese tourists spent $277 billion on travel last year, nearly twice the $144 billion spent by American tourists. Thinking about Central Asia, just take a small percentage of that spend and direct it towards journeys along the Silk Road. And maybe, just maybe, it's a win-win for all parties. China builds a tourism business in Central Asia while raising historical awareness around the importance of the Silk Road. Central Asia, in turn, reaps tourist dollars to gird local traditions and customs. Sound like a pipe dream? Maybe so. Tourism is a two-edged sword. It can do as much harm as good when it comes to cultural heritage. Still, the way Alex tells it, the world may be ready to reframe the way we visit and enjoy remote locations with unique traditions. Ecotourism is on a fast rise, and globalization is taking a drubbing in the wake of calls for cultural preservation. If Alex's 1998 Mitsubishi could talk, it would be calling out for more paved roads and fewer potholes throughout the Central Asian tundra. Beyond that, maybe something simple, like parks or rest areas, where instead of contending with caravans of 18-wheelers, one can simply pull over and feast one's eyes on landscapes still undisturbed by the prying claws of commerce. What do you think? Check out this episode by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. Download and listen to this episode or any of our other 100-plus episodes spanning dozens of topics talking about Asia in transition. No time to listen? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. It's free. Just go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Music